Hello and welcome to the London School of Economics for a special joint programme with Al Jazeera and with the help of the pro-democracy media group, the Democratic Voice of Burma. I'm Veronica Pedroza and this is At the Crossroads, a dialogue with Aung San Suu Kyi, the recently released pro-democracy leader in Burma. We are using technology in order to have her with us that has rarely been used for this purpose uh, it, in a country where the media is severely restricted and there is a team of courageous journalists who are trying to make this happen. We do hope that you'll bear with us through any technical difficulties that we go through. Now I want to introduce you to the distinguished uh, panel of experts that we have uh, joining us to put all of this into a global context. Also facilitating this discussion with me is Professor uh, Dr. Mong Zani, a Burmese dissident and research fellow at the London School of Economics. With his first-hand knowledge of Burma, he's going to be sharing his insights of armed conflicts, resistance, and the Burmese military. We have Mary Caldor, Professor and Co-Director of LSE Global Governance. She's written extensively on global civil society or how ordinary people organize to change the way their countries and global institutions are run. Timothy Garth Nash is a historian, political commentator and regular columnist for the UK newspaper The Guardian. Back in 2000, Dong San Suu Kyi invited Professor Garth Nash to Burma to speak to members of her party, the National League for Democracy, about transitions to democracies. His main interests are civil resistance and the role of Europe and the Old West in an increasingly post-Western world. Uh, he's also Professor of European Studies at Oxford University. Thank you very much indeed. All right, first of all, we are, we are trying to get in touch with Aung San Suu Kyi. Do we have a phone line? All right. What we're going to do then is let me start with somebody who can't join us today um, in person, Professor Amartya Sen. Should we do... Yes. Okay, Professor Amartya Sen won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1998. He's probably best known for his attempt to relink economics to ethics and social responsibility. He spent part of his childhood in Mandalay, Burma. He can't be with us in person, so he's recorded an address and a personal message for this dialogue. Well, Burma is in many ways the most important country of my childhood. This is where my understanding of the world began. I was at the age of, between the ages of three and six, I was in Burma. All my earliest memories, the beauty of the country, the fantastic charm of the people, the warmth and hospitality of our Burmese friends and neighbors and colleagues of my, my parents. These are my earliest memories of Burma. And these have stayed with me and shaped my life, all my life. I was fortunate also to see uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, of whom I have the greatest of admirations, he's one of the great leaders of our time. 
um, when she was a student in Delhi and then briefly in Oxford. I don't think she will remember the occasion. But uh, I came to know Michael Laris, her husband, extremely well. And we often shared our sense of sorrow as well as determination. We celebrated together when Aung San Suu Kyi got the Nobel. Uh, we did it in Cambridge Mass here. Uh, Michael had flown in. Michael called me just three or four days before he died. He was finding it difficult to believe that he was dying. He wanted to deny it, but he wanted also for the battle to continue, for us not to lose focus. I still, when I sometimes lose my sense of determination, or at least fear losing it, I think of Michael and his words with full of strength, even when his voice was faltering on the telephone. These were one of the most moving moments in my life. A few days later, I was told he, was, he had died. It was also his birthday. But that determination, that sense of purpose that Michael gave me, and I think gave all of us, is something which we have to cherish, remember, and follow. All right. As we're trying to establish contact with Aung San Suu Kyi, we're going to start the discussion. We may be able to see her. Um, we are just trying to make that happen, fingers crossed, exactly. We're going to start the discussion, though, by talking about the main themes, if we could, first of all, to our panel. Uh, Mongzani, this was your initiative, really. Um, why conflicts, civil society, democracy and development? Well... I think, you know, Burmese problems can be framed in so many different ways. Human rights problems, uh, uh, bad governance, uh, natural resource curse, and so on and so forth. But I think thematically there are four building blocks of this problem, our problem. Uh, one is, uh, you know, the conflicts, because we were a country that w was born into the uh, uh, conflict upon independence. We have one of the longest running conflicts in the world. Uh, over the past 60 years. And, uh, you know, related to the conflict is um, the absence of uh, development. And so uh, that's why, you know, some of us decided that thematically, you know, conflict, uh, civil society development, uh, development and democracy uh, would be most crucial themes to uh, address for all Burmese. I want to ask you, but, and why now these, uh, these sense of being at the crossroads for uh, Myanmar, Burma. There was that um, book that's just recently been published that was talking about a sense uh, of change, but that might be grounded in hope rather than reality after the recent elections. Yeah, one reason is that, um, you know, the aging dictatorship, the aging leadership of the Burmese dictatorship, you know, the two top generals are in their late 70s, mm -hmm. and there's a sense within the military rank and file as well as in the society at large that transition may be in the air and uh, you know with the uh, release of Aung San Suu Kyi uh, the hopes and aspirations of the Burmese people have been revived and so I think this is an opportune moment to look at fundamental issues rather than addressing uh, you know, uh, uh, approaching Burma in a piecemeal fashion. We may go over this ground again a little bit later when Aung San Suu Kyi joins us, but Professor Kaldor, what is meant by civil society? 
and what role could it play in a transition like in a country like Burma? Well, nowadays civil society often tends to be associated with NGOs. I think that's a real misunderstanding of what civil society is. In fact, uh, my colleague, uh, the scholar Mahmoud Mamdani, often says NGOs are killing civil society. <laughs> Uh, I think what civil society is, and it's changed its meaning over very many um, decades and historically, but I think there was always a common core of meaning. And that common core of meaning was about a space where people can come together and debate public issues from the perspective of the public interest. So what that means is that civil society is in all different places. It's in the internet, it's in tea houses, it's in people's homes. Uh, that's what we mean by civil society. And I think nowadays, thinking about Burma, um, in, in the past it was much easier for authoritarian regimes to maintain closed societies and to close down uh, civil society, even kitchen table civil society. Nowadays with globalization, whether it's trade, whether it's communication and internet, whether it's even the spread of international law, these do help to create spaces inside countries like Burma. I, we were writing about Burmese civil society and got very moving messages from Burmese activists who had spent hours in internet cafes, for example, trying to communicate with us. Mm. Professor Garton Nash, you've written recently about the role that the international community could play. Um, in The Guardian, you wrote a column about India's potential role in helping Burma make the transition. Um, with your interest in the increasingly post-Western world, can you go over your arguments for why India and why now? Indeed. Let me start by saying why I'm here, yeah. if I may briefly, mm -hmm. which is that Michael Ayres was a colleague of mine at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and became a very good friend, a dear friend. He and I had long talked about my going to Burma. In the end, I only managed to get there after he had died, and it was an absolutely unforgettable visit. I will never forget it, because of the contrast between the extreme beauty of the country about which Amartya Sen spoke, and the extreme suffering of the people. I wrote something about it afterwards called Beauty and the Beast. And I was there 10 years ago, and I thought this has been far too long, 10 years since the outcome of a legitimate election was denied. Now it's 20 years on. And one of the reasons it has taken so long is not to do with the necessary weakness of the opposition, because actually in 2007 we had in Burma one of the most impressive movements of non-violent action, of civil resistance yeah. that we have seen, but because of the international context, that whereas a country like Serbia or Ukraine had powers favorable to change around it, in the case of Burma the geopolitical context has the massive presence of China on one side, and alas, the largest democracy in the world, India, which is not prepared to promote its own values, the values of democracy and freedom, on its own very doorstep. And for me, that is one of the keys to the future of Burma. 
When you're in Burma, as I have been uh, a couple of times over the last few years, um, and you talk to people in government, um, they say they have very good relations with their neighbours. They don't understand why the West calls them things like pariah state. Um, they say, they, and that's true, I mean, they have very good relations with Thailand, with China. Um, Monzani, can you, with your insights of the military government, because you, you come from a military family, don't you, um, explain how the Burmese authorities look at the outside world? Well, in a nutshell, they're stuck in the 19th century notion of sovereignty and they believe in absolutist notion of sovereignty where outside world is kept at bay. You know, the colonial experience shaped the ultra-nationalist uh, wing of the, the Burmese society, and they view outside world uh, with, um, you know, xenophobic skepti uh, you know, uh, fear. And uh, also, you know, we were sandwiched between two giant neighbors, uh, India and China, and the relations between Thailand and Burma had not been you know, uh, always as smooth or commercially, um, you know, beneficial to the top elites. Um, the reason they, the, the hunter views the neighbors as friendly and commercially uh, uh, beneficial to them is simply because no neighbor insists on the Burmese regime, uh, you know, uh, in terms of how they treat the citizens in the country. In other words, no neighbor has any interest in making sure that a good government, uh, good governance prevails in the country. Um, this ties into some of your work, doesn't it, Professor Calder, about the old and new war paradigms where the new kind of, kind of wars are self-sustaining for both sides? Yes. I, um, I mean, I think it's true that, just to tie it in with what Dr. Zani was saying, that new wars are both local and global. They have outsiders sustaining as well as uh, local issues. I think the key characteristic of contemporary wars, which are certainly relevant in the Burmese case, one is uh, the fact that the made victims of such wars, in fact, deliberate victims, are civilians and civil society. Violence is directed against civilians and against civil society. If you look at the statistics of contemporary wars, they have very, very high levels of population displacement and very high levels of civilian casualties in relation to military casualties. Um, and I think what's more striking even is that these actions against civilians occur at a time when we're more aware of what goes on in different parts of the world and when international law has been developing. So they violate both the laws of war and human rights law. But I think the other characteristic, and this is what you were referred to, is the fact that new wars are really very difficult to win. Um, and maybe the protagonists don't even want to win. Maybe the point of new wars is the enterprise of having a war. Maybe through wars, uh, the different sides gain political positions. They manage to emphasize extreme nationalism or other forms of identity politics. 
and it allows them to engage in all kinds of nefarious, predatory economic activities. And I think there's certainly an element of that when we talk about Burma, in the sense that for the military, their legitimation rests on a continuing conflict with ethnic minorities. So there are lots of implications there, which maybe we'll come back to later for what how then, what does that mean then yes, for how please. you address these? Yes, that would be great. We're actually going to pause for a moment and try and show you Aung San Suu Kyi. We are going to try and establish comms. Do Aung San Suu Kyi, I'm Veronica in London at the London School of Economics. We can see you. Can you hear us? Yes. Wonderful. Sort of. Wonderful. We're very excited Do to see you. Dorsu, um, opposite me is Dr. Zani, Professor Kaldor, and Professor Timothy Garten-Nash. They're all greeting you, and we have a room full of about 400 excited students and academics. So, shall we begin our discussion, if you're ready? I'm not sure I heard everything you said, but anyway... Uh... The delay. It's, the, it's the delay. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I heard everything you said, but hello anyway. <laughs> yes. Um, let's do the single. Okay. Excuse me. All right. So Aung San Suu Kyi, we're going to begin our discussion. I'll try. This is Burma, you know. We can't hear very well. <laughs> We're so thrilled to have you with us. Aung San Suu Kyi, you are admired and respected in your country and around the world, but people haven't been able to hear from you because of your long imprisonment. Um, in this dialogue, we want to help you break the silence. Can I ask you to speak a few personal words to the audience we have here? And also to please comment on the main themes of our dis dialogue, conflict and the need for reconciliation, democracy and its links with development, and civil society. Well, uh, as a personal word, I'm very glad to be able to communicate with you. That in itself, for me, is a great progress. We'll keep trying. We'll, we'll keep trying to get back to Aung San Suu Kyi, but it was wonderful to see her there. Do you have the other clip of Amartya Sen, please? Yes. Amartya Sen has, written, has uh, also written a special address for this dialogue. He called it 10 Things That We Can Do For Burma. It's about six minutes long, and while it's playing, we'll try and, uh, we'll and re-establish communications. 
So Professor Amartya Sen now speaks about the 10 things we can do for Burma. Delighted to have this opportunity of talking to people in this wonderful meeting. I wish I could have been there, but this is better than nothing. Uh, we are assembled here on a very important occasion, and I would like to talk about 10 things we can do about Burma today. Burma has been in the grip of a supremely despotic military rule for almost half a century now, with collapsing institutions, arbitrary imprisonment, widespread torture, organized rapes and killing, and terrorization of minority communities, including the Chins, the Karens, the Shans, the Rohingyas. The release of the great leader Aung San Suu Kyi from unjust confinement is not only a great moment for celebration, it's also a time to think clearly about what the world can do to help Burma. The military dictators designed the recent elections in a crooked way that made sure of their staying in power. With 25% of the seats reserved for the military rulers, strong democracy, pro-democracy candidates barred from participation, leaders of opposition and activists kept in confinement, criticism of the regime totally banned in pre-election speeches. What can the world do? The answer is a great deal. First, many analysts of Burmese affairs have called for an international commission of inquiry in Burma, possibly led by the United Nations. The case for this is very strong, especially after the manipulated elections. Second, the framework of sanctions and embargoes has to be made more effective. General sanctions that hurt the Burmese people, such as restrictions on garment exports from Burma, can be sensibly replaced by those that isolate the rulers by targeting their own favorite activities. Third, at the top of list of potential effective targeted sanctions must clearly be an embargo, a total embargo on arms and armaments of all kinds to Burma. Fourth, there's a strong political case for considering sanctions on those commodities such as minerals and gems and oil and gas that yield huge profits to the regime. Fifth, severe financial restrictions and prohibitions imposed on large transactions from Myanmar can be a well-targeted policy. Sixth, ban on foreign travel imposed on the personnel, personnel running the regime can also be very effective. Seventh, neighboring countries of Burma, particularly China, but also Thailand and India, which provide support for the military regime in exchange for their own gains, have a special responsibility. Aside from the moral nastiness of supporting an awfully oppressive regime, this may well be a prudential mistake as well. The tyrants of Burma 
will sooner or later fall, as tyrants do eventually. However, the memory of betrayal of the Burmese people will last a long time, just as the intense anti-Americanism in Latin America, Latin America today draws on the history of U.S. support for brutal regimes of yesterday. Eight, the Western countries are sharp in, are sharp in rhetoric in denouncing Myanmar's rulers, but do not do what is entirely within their power to do, like withdrawing from lucrative Burmese business and imposing financial sanctions. This is bad in itself, but it also makes it harder to persuade China, India, and Thailand to do the right thing. Ninth, and most important, there has to be an end to the sense of dejection and hopelessness that is so dominant now. The fight, we must remember, is for the restoration of democracy in Burma, not for tiny bits of concession. Finally, in a non-defeatist approach, we have to start thinking about how a post-military government will deal with the culprits of the past. There's a strong case for not threatening bloody revenge, but opting instead for the sagacity of offering safety in exchange for remorse. Even butchers have to find a way out if they are not to go on fighting and tyrannizing to the bitter end. With well-targeted policies carried out with determination and clarity of reasoning, we can make the Burmese leaders withdraw. The change can come more quickly than most people imagine. Professor Amartya Sen there. Let's move on to one of the main themes of our dialogue today, um, conflict and the need for peaceful reconciliation. Uh, Zani, you've spent years researching and engaging the Burmese military. Um, <coughs> tell us about the nature of the conflict in Burma and why it's one of the world's longest. Well, I would summarize this um, in, in the following way. There are two dimensions to the um, Burmese conflicts. You know, I, I use conflicts plural because there are two parallel conflicts going on. One is the conflict between the society at large and the ruling military that has been going on since 1962 when the military first came to power. Um, and second conflict is the Burmese-controlled military regime and military as an institution versus the ethnic nationalities or minority communities. And we have one of the longest running conflicts in the world, over 60 years. And before you know, I mention a few salient points, let me point out there is a, um, a very strong international dimension to the Burmese conflict. As uh, you know, um, Tim and, and Mary have pointed out, there are global actors uh, in the resource extractive industry, natural gas, oil and energy um, uh, companies, as well as Burmese neighbors uh, that prioritize their energy security at the expense of human security of the Burmese people. Um, the other dimension of the international 
you know, aspect of um, the Burmese conflict is that the military has been proven to be the most destabilizing factor and uh, keeping the conflict alive because the conflict is a golden goose that lays eggs for the top leadership. Yeah? So they're not going to kill the, 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 you know, the valuable creature that uh, is serving their interest. Um, the, there are a few domestic features. One is the, um, there, is, there are ways, peaceful ways out of the Burmese conflict. For two reasons, uh, for two reasons. One is that the Burmese society, multi-ethnic society, different communities are tired of the conflict and they want uh, the end to conflict. I have traveled across the Korean National Union territories and other uh, armed conflict zones, talked to the leadership of different armed ethnic groups, um, as well as the rank and file in the trenches, and they want a compromise, peaceful solution. But the problem is, as I said, uh, the conflict. Conflicts are serving the interests of the ruling general, and so they are pursuing a zero-sum game. And the other uh, um, aspect um, is the uh, a new development that has been going on over the past 22 years since the Burmese socialist military regime switched to free market policy, so-called. And they are these. Um, new policies attempt to bring in massive development projects, you know, billions and billions of dollars pour into hydropower projects, dam building, special economic zones and whatnot. So dirty industries from our neighborhood, from Thailand, China, others, are moving into the countries because in those places civil, society are strong, uh, civil societies are stronger and uh, you know, the regimes are much more responsive to citizens' livelihood needs. And so two major issues. One is the conflicts in Burma serve the economic and ideological interests of the ruling hunter, and, and second is that massive development-related uh, policies are having a major destabilizing impact on the society, and uh, the money that comes through those projects is basically fueling the, uh, the further conflicts. You spoke about the role of civil society there. Can I ask you to um, elaborate on that, Professor Caldor, as you see it in the Burmese context? Well, I think what Zani has just said, he's reiterated the point that mm. I was making earlier about the self-sustaining nature of the mm. conflict. And if you start from that assumption, then the ways out of the conflict are not the obvious ways. You can't end the conflict militarily, but equally you can't end the conflict through reconciliation from above, because certainly on the side of the junta there aren't really legitimate grievances to be met. So what's really required is an effort to achieve reconciliation from below, to create an alternative kind of legitimacy that could undermine the junta. I always talk about the need for, if you like, a cosmopolitan story. And what I mean by that is three things. First, the idea that legitimacy is based on human values and not on any particular group. 
Secondly, that we should celebrate ethnic diversity and the very many different ways of being human. And thirdly, that we should be open to the outside world. And I think in the end, building this civil society from below around this common story is probably the only way out. But how do you create the space to do that? And I think here, of course, a lot of it has to be done locally. But I think here the outside world does have a role, not through funding NGOs and creating artificial NGOs, but through communication, through the use of international law as pressures. I agree with the Marcia Sen that this fact-finding commission could be very important. Through trade and sanctions, the international community can help to create free spaces in which ordinary Burmese can discuss how to live together. When I, yeah, when I was in Burma uh, in 2006, I did a report about um, an actor, Jordu, who I know Zani knows, who uh, created a, a kind of NGO. It, they provide free funeral services um, for people who can't afford funerals, and he would drive the funeral hearse himself. He's a, he's a wonderful guy. Um, but it was he is a supporter of the NLD, but it was extremely politicized. We were followed by minders who tried to get in the way of every shoot that we did. We couldn't understand it because we were new in Burma. Didn't understand the extreme politicization of everything. Everything is political there. I wonder if you shared that same experience and how you look back on it 10 years on. Yes, I mean, you know, there are many countries like this uh, in which if you, all you have is civil society, then you don't have civil society. It is an abnormal position just to have that one dimension. The normal condition, healthy condition of civil society is that you also have the rule of law and representative government and independent media and so on. So it's having to do the work of everything else. Uh, and that's an unnatural condition which I, which I hope will not last too long. Um, like everybody else, I'm still hoping very much to hear more from Aung San Suu Kyi, yes. and I wonder, if, um, I wonder if I could just sort of put on the table a couple of points, which maybe she can respond to either now or later. Mm. Um, because um, a colleague of mine uh, and, uh, and, and I at Oxford have done a, a, ma a big study of most of the major cases of the use of civil resistance over the last hundred years, mm -hmm. from Gandhi to Burma 2007. And Burma 2007 was a very impressive moment of civil resistance. Mm. But if it's going to lead to a successful negotiated transition, then there are certain elements that have to come into place. And if I could just mention three, mm -hmm. and then maybe she yeah. could respond to this at some point, right. we hope, mm -hmm. um, communications willing. First of all, you have to have a strategic unity of the movement, bringing together wide sections of society in, for clear strategic goals. And it seems to me the key problem in Burma here is not just unity within Burmese society, but the problem of the very large ethnic minorities. And so one would love to hear from her how she views that going forward. Yeah. Secondly, to have a negotiated transition, you need someone to negotiate with. It takes two to tango. And so the key feature that distinguishes successful cases of civil resistance 
that ultimately there was someone among the power holders in the regime who was ready to negotiate. Does she see such people and forces at present or potentially in the Burmese regime? And thirdly, the question we've just been talking about, you've just been talking about, which is the dreadful problem of the past. Because if you have a velvet revolution, a pacted transition, a negotiated settlement, you cannot bring to justice all the criminals, and they were criminals, who should be brought to court and put in prison. You have to accept that. And so what do you do about the problem of the past? Now, my own view is I would love to hear what Dorsu would have to say about the idea of the international inquiry on Burma. Mm -hmm. My own view is that the most successful examples of this is when it comes from within, and as you said, from below, inside the society. So the model is the South African Truth Commission, where it's those who suffered and those who inflicted the suffering who between them, in a common process of publicly confronting a difficult past in a truth commission. And so let us hope that one day we may too see a truly Burmese, Burma-wide truth commission in Burma. Thanks very much. Let me pause for a moment just to give the audience a bit of an update. We have a satellite truck outside on uh, Sardinia Street just now trying to re-establish communications with Aung San Suu Kyi. We now know it's possible, so that's why we're keeping on trying with that. If it becomes, uh, if it becomes not... Uh, is there a point at which we just go on the phone, perhaps? And we're trying to do that. Um, so at, at least we'll, have, we'll hear her voice. But at the moment, even the phone lines are very difficult. So thank you very much for bearing with us. Um, I was wondering, um, when I, when, from my experiences in Burma, I was invited to Naypyidaw by the government, and it's, a, it's quite a surreal place, sort of artificially imposed on the landscape, kind of like carved into the landscape, purpose-built administrative capital for the generals. Um, and you go through, you drive that long road all the way to Naypyidaw, and you see this sort of Ceausescu-like structures, enormous structure that's built to kind of support the, the Constitution. Um, it, it's, it's, it's shocking because they have not only an assembly room, I didn't go inside, just outside, um, for the national representatives, but there's a state assembly, there's an assembly room for every state, and every single representative gets an office. And it's just shocking, considering how poor people are, not very far away. So these kind of historical examples and examples from other country, countries seem a bit alien to me when I think about Burma. I don't know, I, I, I tend to be pessimistic. Um, yeah, yes, of course. You know, there are mm. many grotesque regimes in history. I mean, yeah. The South African regime was pretty grotesque. Ceausescu's Romania was mm -hmm. very grotesque indeed. Mm -hmm. If you go to the Palace of the People in Bucharest, and still, with relatively little violence, you have a transition. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that precludes success. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But I was wondering about, uh, with his research in the military, sure. um, what role the military could play. I mean, that, that, it seems like a, a, a wall, a high blank wall, 
Well, I mean, like, you know, the, how the space or architecture is used it speaks volume about the nature of the regime. When you have a regime that has moved the capital away from the public, you know, away from the seaports, mm. out of fear of, say, like, you know, uh, say, naval invasion, um, you know, that's, that's the in international dimension. And domestically, if a regime feels that they need to remove themselves from the very public, you know, in whose name they rule the country, what that tells is that the regime feels it is apart from the public. It is not part of the public. That's a, that's a fundamental fact we need to understand. This is where the old, you know, like... Uh, the old like leftist per, um, uh, terminology, the ruling class comes in, to, uh, in play, comes useful. They see themselves as entitled to rule, not just govern. You know, the 20th century no, or modern liberal notions of like, uh, um, you know, rule by consent is not part of their discourse. And so therefore, I think what we have over the past 50 years is a formation of a military as a social class, not just as a ruling regime, you know, with economic foundation, ideological apparatuses, and of course, uh, you know, needless to say, the uh, uh, op oppressive arms of the, uh, the military. And so we have a society and a political system that are moving in a space which I will call military apartheid. Apartheid in the case of South Africa is on the basis of skin color. 5% of white population, Afrikaner, you know, at the, uh, uh, you know, in charge of 95% black Africans. In our case, uh, the, the division is on the basis of the color of the uniform. The, the green uniform versus the sarong. Does that have any echoes with the uh Work that you've been studying, you've been doing, uh, Professor Caldor, about this a military class. Have you seen that anywhere else, and, and what problems that poses for reconciliation? I think um, you know we need to go back to the colonial period, and to understand that the military in Europe were developed to fight wars against other European states, and what colonial countries did when they tried to establish states, post-colonial states, was to train the military in their own image. And I think part of the problem is that here you have a society where actually the job of the military is not to fight against other states. It has only a job of discovering domestic enemies, and I think that has happened in a number of, there aren't, mm -hmm. it isn't fighting against foreign enemies, which was what European armies were designed to do. <coughs> and I think that's really at the root of the problem, that their only raison d'etre as a military class is fighting enemies. And those enemies, because of the nature of today's society, are all domestic. And that's a pattern you see in many post-colonial countries. And that might be a problem also with these, the fact-finding commission. We're talking about the Commission of Inquiry. Um, in Southeast Asia, there tends to be a bit of a history of these, these um, amnest, kind of amnesties being a means by which mili uh, the, ruling, uh, the rulers discover who their enemies are. Um, is that what you... Is, what do you think about the idea of a Commission of Inquiry? Um, uh, in that context. I mean, I, I, as I said, I think that in the mm. end, 
if you're going to have a successful negotiated transition, it's better to have your own truth commission. Right. But in the meantime, mm -hmm. and, and, and let's hope it's not too long mm -hmm. in the meantime, I think an international commission of inquiry is a very good idea for the simple reason that when you have, as it might be, a UN inquiry mm -hmm. that establishes some facts about what is going on in Burma, mm -hmm. it is difficult not just for the generals to deny, mm -hmm. it's difficult for their ASEAN and Chinese and Indian neighbors to pretend mm -hmm. these things aren't happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, India recognized the results of the last election mm -hmm. as, as roughly speaking fair. That's mm -hmm. totally ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So simply to establish the facts and make it more difficult to deny those facts would seem to be useful. Um, we were talking a little, oh, I understand that we now have Aung San Suu Kyi on the phone. We've been trying to establish um, the picture and the sound, but it seems that we can now get the sound. Do Aung San Suu Kyi, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Great. Thank you very much indeed. I'm sorry about all these technical difficulties. Thank you for your patience no, and for bearing with right. us. Great. Um, I want to ask you first of all about the fundamental challenges facing Burma at this time. Um, we, and also if you could speak a few words, personal words, to the audience we have here. Um, we have Professor Zani, Professor Kaldor and Professor Garten Ash and an audience of about 400 students from the London School of uh, Economics. Um, could you tell us uh, your thoughts on the main themes we're talking about today? Um, conflict and the need for peaceful resolution, democracy and development, and also civil society. Conflict, of course, has come in many ways. We're not talking about armed conflict, I take it, at this moment. We're talking about the conflict of ideas, the conflict of justice. We think that there's a need for change in Burma. But on the other hand, the military government does not think that there needs to change. And there is the basic conflict of interest. Development is important. But I think development has to go hand in hand with freedom. On this I'm agreed with development and freedom, freedom and development cannot be separated. And then also it's very much in agreement with Tim's idea of what unfreedom means. I have to say that I haven't read any of Tim's recent publications, but I was very struck by what he wrote in the last book he sent me in 2004, that he met a young woman who had been a political prisoner in Burma, and she told him that she was very thankful to those who had imprisoned her because it had given her a chance to practice meditation and help her to get on the way to Nirvana. But in spite of that, she said there's no wish to go back to, to prison. So what it means is that we all value freedom greatly, whatever we may think about development of democracy or national reconciliation. We can start from the basis that we all want freedom. And the real reason why we want to resolve conflict peacefully is because we think that's the way to freedom 
and secure schools. These are the two things that we have to balance all the time. The military authorities emphasize security, and they seem to see freedom as a threat to security. I think we've been cut off. No, if I we haven't been cut off, could you say? Hello? Please go ahead, Joshua. We can hear you loud and clear. Yeah, I haven't been cut off? No. No, no, no. We're all here. All right. Anyway, I'm, I'm, we have had years and years of practice uh, uh, talking and talking and getting your response. So I think I'll just carry on. We really appreciate it. Um, don't all sound so Sorry? We really appreciate it. A, a few minutes ago... Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate the patience, too. We heard from Professor Amartya Sen about his personal relationship um, with your late husband, Michael Aris. It was very moving personal testimony um, about his determination, his courage right to the very end. And you've said... Um, since your release, though, that democracy is not a one-woman show and that you're working towards building a web of democracy activists and supporters inside and outside Burma. Can you comment first um, on, on the personal testimony of Amartya Sen, which I know you know about, and on your strategic vision going forward? Well, we've tried working for democracy in various ways. And we think now it's necessary to expand uh, the boundaries of the way history works. This is why I talked about the People's Network working for the process of democratization in Burma. And a network that is spread all over the world. We have had some success in Burma even during the last month. We've been able to contact other groups other individuals, other parties who had nothing to do with the NLD before. And we've started working on some projects together. This is a step forward towards strengthening civil society. I'm a little worried about talking about civil society because there are those who say that civil society is overrated and everybody is talking about it these days, using it as a mantra. It's not a mantra for us, it's a goal. Because there's hardly a civil society in Burma, which has been under ministry rule for several decades. And it is a goal which we hope will take us towards safety and security. And this is why we want to create a network which will also be a safety net for those of us who are working for human rights and democracy in Burma. We can help each other, we can catch each other if some, in some place there's a, there's a broken string and somebody falls through. If the network will become a safety net. And we hope that the whole world will join us in this by connecting us to our network in any way possible. And we welcome suggestions and advice I can't promise that we always take advice, but we always welcome it anyway. And uh, we think that we can learn a lot from you. I've been reading, doing my homework really, reading all about the comments of uh, 
Tim and Professor Sen and uh, Professor Caldwell. And there's so much that I would I'd like to discuss with you. Mm-hmm. But it seems also I've only been given time to say thank you and goodbye and not very much else. <laughs> so, they so I would so much Professor Garden Ash just a few moments ago wanted to ask you a question himself if you can still hear us Dorsu he'd like to give his greetings hello Um, hello oh so so hello very 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 nice to be talking to you and very warm Christmas greetings from all your old friends in Oxford I'm sorry I can't uh, I can't make out what you're saying. I said very warm Christmas greetings from all your old friends in Oxford, where we hope to see you oh, well. very soon. <laughs> and well, I think you said Christmas greetings, so Christmas greetings from this side as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And if I may, while we still have the line, um, you remember when we talked ten years ago about, which was the last time we had a chance to talk, about the ingredients for, for a successful negotiated transition, um, we, we talked about several elements. Um, what, one of the elements was obviously having people inside the regime who would be willing to negotiate, to engage in a dialogue. And I wonder if you could tell us, uh, to the extent you can in publicly, um, how you see that now, what you see as the chances? Well, I have to admit I could hardly understand a word of what you said. <laughs> but, uh, but I heard a lot of laughter, so I, I think it must have been something witty, but I really couldn't make up what you were saying. That's all right. Um, Dorsu, it's about reconciliation. Do you feel there are elements in the military who are ready to negotiate towards reconciliation? And a negotiated transition. Well, what of the perseverance will be necessary? I think you ask how we will get to, to negotiate. Yes. To negotiations. I think that is the question. You yes. summed it up perfectly. Well, we, we really need everybody's help as well. We will try to assure the military hunter that negotiations are meant for everybody, that it will increase not only the security of the, of the country, but also their security as well. If, as some people think, it is because of their concerns about their own security that they are not interested in negotiations. But I think we also need the world to join in to help us convince them that it is uh, it is for both for all sides that there will be negotiations. It sounds very much as though I've been cut off again. No, no, not at all. You're yes? fine. You're fine. We can hear you loud and clear, and it's wonderful to keep to have you still on the line. Can can I ask a can I sort of follow up just by asking you? Have you had any approaches since you've been freed towards reconcili- negotiations? Has the government approached you? Did, did you say if I have had any response? Yes. 
Well, no, as I said, you know, we've had a lot of practice of not getting any response, so that doesn't discourage us in any way. We just have to continue and persevere and uh, hope that we will understand sooner rather than later that negotiations are as much to their advantage as to ours. Um, we were just talking here when you mentioned the outside world about the importance of the position of India, the world's largest democracy. Do you any, see any signs that that is uh, becoming, how shall I put it, more helpful? I'm sorry, I didn't... The question was about India. We are asking about India. You have to... Oh, about India? Yes, please. Well, about India, well, as I have said very often, always look to India just as saying, very special thing, because of the history of perspective, but it's all together to regain our independence. But now it seems that India has other considerations besides those of freedom and democracy. But still, I do believe that our old friendship can be revived. And I believe the people of India have not completely given up the aspirations which guided them during the years when we were struggling for independence together. But India is not the only country that we would like to bring closer to us. China, the Asian country, and all the rest of the world as well. I have said repeatedly that it would be so much better for the Burmese cause if all these countries could work in coordination. I think that it was, I think it was you, Tim, who said in your book that there is much that the countries could do if they would only ever act together. I should speak to them. Dorsu, what about within Burma too? Professor Gardner-Nash was talking about how there needs to be a large kind of strategic agreement between um, different groups in societies. And in the Burmese context, it's the ethnic groups that are very important. Can you talk about your efforts towards building a kind of consensus, a kind of unity that could lead to some form of transformation? I'm sorry, could you repeat Can you tell us about your work with ethnic minorities? How? With ethnic groups. Can ah, you... ethnic. Yes, yes, please. We have, been, uh, we have been trying very hard to achieve unity from the disabilities. No, mm -hmm. I care of it. And uh, there seems to be a lot of consensus. What we want to do of ethnic nationalities to get together to present their aspirations and their hopes as one whole so that we can build a strong spirit of union on these aspirations, based on these aspirations. I know that there have been the uh, comments to the effect that, that the whole final business is a, is a legend and there have been many misunderstandings about it. 
We understand this. This is why, as part of the protest to the uh, second time long, we are uh, trying to arrange a series of talks and discussions about the first time long so that we know what it is all about and what we should do to improve on what we began in 
and independent judiciary from starting at the consequences of the so again, I'm to talk to each other. I'm to talk to each other. To ideas about what we expect from democracy. Obviously, we expect some democracy, even our democracy of a different nation. And we would like them to what we expect. I, I was talking to some young people today. And we were discussing the fact that one of the basic problems is people have one idea how the government has how country has to should be. So I think we have to restart the idea. Dawn San Suu Kyi, it's quite difficult to hear you, but we're going to try and press on with everybody's patience. Zani, did you want to ask a question? Yes, um, Dosu, I think the, over the past 22 years, what the military has been attempting to do is to frame you as part of their propaganda war, uh, a puppet of the Western neo-colonialist powers. I put that in um, quotation marks because that comes directly from the state media. And I have found through my research as well as my conversations with different uh, um, you know, senior as well as mid-ranking officials within the regime that the propaganda has been rather effective in the sense that uh, a lot of army officers view you as a tool of the West and I would like you to respond effectively to that uh, propaganda specifically. It's very difficult to understand you now too, Dorsu. Shall we try and drop the line and re-establish a bit later? Shall we pa we'll pause for a while. I think it would be better because it's a bit frustrating, really. So we'll try again. Bear with us for another. We did say it was going to be a bit stop and start, and it truly is. Um, once again, just want to repeat that it's very difficult to get a phone line established there, let alone a satellite line, let alone a began. All right. We are re-establishing the line and we'll press on with our discussion in the, in the meantime. And actually, we've got another 20 minutes left, I believe. So what we'll do is, if she comes back as well, whether there were any questions from the audience, um, we will ask you later. We'll, we'll try and give you leave about 10 minutes for that towards the end. So if you could just uh, indicate if you want to ask a question to the people in red. Um, you, can, you can dim the house lights again. We'll, that'll be in about 10 minutes, and we'll wait until the... Thank you very much. We'll, oh! <laughs> we'll wait until we've got the phone line back to give you that opportunity. I wanted to continue with that theme about democracy and development. Um, I wonder... Timothy Garton, Ash, about your views on universal values versus 
Western values on democracy and human yeah. rights. I, I mean, I'd like to, sort of, as it were, bring this to a point which I hope she could respond to if we could understand anything of what anyone was saying. Um, so the problem is that we're now in a position where even if people talk about universal values, universal values, dictators hear Western values. So the Chinese say, okay, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee in Du Chambeau, they say that's universal values, but they mean Western values. And they say, Aung San Suu Kyi talks about universal values, but she means Western values. She learned it all in Oxford and elsewhere in the West. Um, <laughs> maybe. Uh, um, possibly. The, but, 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 but the truth is that here is someone who's absolutely steeped in Burmese history, studied Indian history very deeply, studied Buddhism very deeply, and actually a lot of her values do come from very different traditions that have very little to do with the West. And so in a way, I think the task for us, but particularly for someone like her, is to make it really clear why these genuinely are universal values also rooted in other cultural traditions. And I would love to hear what she has to say on that subject, of what, for example, the Buddhist tradition distinctively adds to that sort of palette of values that she, she's advocating. Professor Caldo, can you talk to us about democratization um, in relation to the research you've done about human-centered approaches to security as compared to military or state-centered concepts of security? Yes, I just wanted to make one okay. comment on what Tim has just said. Uh, which I think is actually summed up brilliantly in Amartya Sen's book, The Argumentative Indian. Yeah. And in that book, Sen makes the point that all traditions actually have a liberal tradition and an illiberal tradition. Christianity, Buddhism, all of them. You can always pick and choose and find a tradition, but all of them do have a liberal tradition and universalism is to be found in all religious traditions. On the question of human security, I think this could be a very important way to challenge the narrative of the military. The military are associated with state security. As I said before, their job is to defend borders. Human security is about protecting individual human beings. It's about creating spaces at local level where people feel safe enough to decide about their future. And actually, what we see at the moment, that these state security approaches make most people feel insecure. So while the military say grandly, our job is security, our job is to defeat the ethnic minorities and the armed resistance, everyone knows they're actually making everybody feel less secure. And that, I think, is the contradiction at the heart of the Burmese regime. And so I think starting to talk about human security and what would be needed to protect people, especially those people who live in what are known as the black zones. What do you do in these really terrible zones that are a mixture of violence, criminality, ethnic cleansing, 
how can you create local spaces where people try to protect themselves and are much more visible to the world? What I hope is two things. I mean, first, that we can actually re make those kinds of black zones as visible as Aung Suu Kyi herself. In a way, public visibility in the world is a sort of way of safety. But I also think that's where the fact-finding mission should come in. It's got to deal with the terrible crimes that are actually being committed every day, both economic and crimes of violence that are being ev committed every day in the black zone. All that is in part a contribution to human security. Can you explain about the black zones, please, um, well, Zani? And also, uh, can you talk a little bit more about um, development, about what it's like for people there? Because um, I've, I've encountered it personally as well myself, and we've, we've spoken about this, that there was a time last year when um, we were in a very remote area of the Irrawaddy Delta, um, reporting on the recovery after Nargis, and this was a village that was... 15 minutes boat ride away from a massive naval base, no sanitation, no running water, there was a small baby that died uh, right in our arms, we tried to resuscitate her, but it was, this is really quite frequent, infant mortality rates are high in Burma, um, and they tend to blame the lack of development on sanctions. Can you talk about that, Zani? Mm. Yeah, I mean, on, on the first issue of uh, uh, the you know, political terminology that comes from, say, Ministry of Defense. Uh, you got uh, Yes, her? we have. Do you mind okay. if I interrupt? No, no, Look. no she's a person. Of course. Dorsey, no. we've got you back, I understand. Do Aung San Suu Kyi, we've got you back, I understand. Can you hear yes, me? Yes, I'm back. Brilliant. Welcome. We are, we've we're talking about democracy and development and we're talking about the sanctions. We wanted to talk about how the infant mortality rates, for example, are very high in Burma. Uh, it, it's down there in terms of human development indicators with Zimbabwe, um, Somalia, uh, Afghanistan, in terms of human conditions. The military has blamed your support for sanctions, for the sorry state of economic affairs. What do you say? I don't think that sanctions have anything to do with the humanitarian situation in Burma. Because we have never asked the sanctions against anything to do with humanitarian aid. In fact, we have ever asked aid was that it should be transparent and open to independent monitoring. We have never tried to stop humanitarian aid in any way. And if you consider the fact that less than 5% than, uh, of the annual budget is spent on both education and health put together, you can understand that the humanitarian situation in our country is than the government. We do not think that sanctions have in any way affected the humanitarian situation in this country. Our guests would like to ask you a quest questions too, Dorsu, Zani. 
Dosu, there has been um, uh, you know, concerted efforts to get uh, the sanction eased um, from uh, commercial interest from both um, ASEAN region and European, within European Union. And uh, their argument is that uh, direct investment and trade will benefit the public. And some of us think differently. I think uh, for economic development to happen, there have to be national institutions, good governance, rule of law, you know, predictability, accountability, uh, transparency in terms of business transactions. As, uh, and so, do you see trade and foreign direct investment um, as a way forward or the institutional reforms as a way forward first? Could you repeat that last word, Dr. Sani? That last bit. Do you think that without institutional reform and uh, you know, governmental accountability, for billions of foreign direct investment in energy sector and natural resource extractive sector, which attract mostly um, foreign um, you know, uh, capital, will benefit our people in terms of the collective well-being? I think we need to work in parallel. It's not just that we, we need to uh, increase aid, whether it's development aid or humanitarian aid. We also need to improve the forms of government. It's only under good governance that the people have access to all the aid that is given to them. I do not think that we can separate, well, as, as the first general said, as we cannot separate development from freedom, we cannot separate the effectiveness of aid from good governance. Professor Kaldor, I would just like to ask you what would you like us, not as governments, but as fellow democracy activists who want to join your network, what would you like us to do? The first part is us ordinary people, not Western governments, who want to be part of your network of democracy activists. Um, I, I think you are, of course, you, you, we would like to democracy activists. Uh, we would very much like everybody to call for inclusiveness in the political process in Burma. I think that's a first step that we must take now, at this moment. By inclusiveness, we mean that all political groups and forces should be allowed to take part in the political work of the country. That means political prisoners should be freed as a first step, and that the political process should not be, uh, should not be limited to those who are going to be in the new parliament. And if everybody in the world, all the, those who wish Burma to progress to the democratization, could insist on this, that at this moment we start from the point of inclusiveness, I think that we should be able to make practical pro progress. Line is and it's Tim here. The line is very bad, so I'll, I'll try and keep this very simple. Um, 
We've been talking a lot about the idea of an international commission of inquiry, an international commission of inquiry into conditions in Burma, mainly just to establish the facts. Uh, I wonder what you feel about that idea. I think Professor Quintana has called the Commission of Inquiries because he thinks that this is necessary in order to promote human rights in Burma. The But I think we should make it quite clear that what we are asking for is a Commission of Inquiry and not a trial of generals, as some people seem to think. And this has become something of, of, of a, a bogey word. Conviction of inquiry, as though we were calling for the general to decide in court and condemn. All we want is for Professor Kitana to be given a chance to carry out his work as special reporter for the Human Rights Commission. And I think that if he feels that if he thinks, it's not just if he thinks that there is a need for a conviction of inquiry, very for thinking so, and that we could also the purpose, because a commission of inquiry could also lead to reconciliation by clearing the air, somewhat like the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa. I don't think we have to look upon this as um, a direct attack on the military authorities, and certainly we would not like the military authorities to look upon this as a direct attack on them. Dorsu, audience members would like to ask you a question. Here is the first one. Can I ask you to keep your question brief because of the phone lines and quite simple? Thank you. Can you tell us your name as well? Okay, my name is Jacqueline Olanya and I'm from Uganda. And I would like to know what is your sense of your source of strength and inspiration for your struggle? Uh, could, could you repeat your question? I'm sorry, I have to keep saying, could you repeat your question, but please, could you repeat it? Sorry, I'd like to know your s source of strength and inspiration for your struggle. Uh, from, from whom I got my inspiration, or from what? Or both? Your inspiration, Dorsu. Well, I'm going to get that as your question, because I... That what is the source of your inspiration? I, I, I think, to begin with, my parents. Because whatever I think of my parents, it gives me strength. And it gives me the, the will to continue with what I have started on. But also from other people. For example, Desmond Tutu, whom I admire very much as a great human being. And as somebody who cares for people beyond his own country and who are of a different color from himself. And uh, it's people like him who help me to understand that what we are working for is not one person or one country or one people, but for human values. Sue, we have another question from the audience. Dion San Suu Kyi, my name is Fraser Wilson and I represent Prospect Burma uh, charity that you know well. Um, the students are of course very important. You have mentioned a number of times the great importance of education. What would you like to say to the students 
about their studies and about their future. Um, what would you like to say to the students about their studies and about their future? What would I like to say to the students about their, their stu studies and their future? Now, this is a problem. I just don't understand you. Um, I mean, your, it's not that uh, your words are not clear. It's not that. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's the line, it's choppy, isn't I it? I can't make out your words. Do Aung San Suu Kyi, the question is, what would you like to say to the students of Burma? We'll be showing this on Democratic Voice of Burma, of course, in Burmese. What would I like to say to the students of Burma? Yes, please. Well, what I would like to say to the students of Burma is that what we are doing is about their future. And they're the future of our country, and they're the hope of our country, and they have to be involved. It's no use that pretending the politics has nothing to do with them. Because even if they don't want to have anything to do with politics, politics will certainly come and have something to do with them. So I would like them to accept that they have a responsibility to try to change Burma. And I have to say that I find that the young people in Burma are taking a greater interest in what goes on now than, say, seven years ago. And uh, I'm very, very much uh, encouraged by this, their renewed interest in, in the political process of the country. And I have great hope that this interest will grow and that they will play a crucial part in bringing change to our country. Thank you. Hello, Ms. Aung San Suu Kyi. My name is Christian Hansen, and I'm from the United States. My question is, where do you see Burma in the next 10 years? Where do I see Burma in the next 10 years? Well, as to where, I suppose in the space, where we are in the sense, I hope to be of where we are now. So here, I would say, it can Thank you very much. And a last question from the audience. Hi, Dasu. My name is Colin. I'm from Canada. I just wanted to say I'm both humbled and honored to be able to ask you a question. I wanted to know with... Hold on a uh, second, Colin. I think we might have a problem with the connection. Can you still hear us? Uh, I, can, I can hear him. Actually, I can hear him quite uh, clearly. <laughs> okay, that's great. Dasu, again, I'm humbled and honored to be able to ask you this. I want to know with the increasing uh, free trade and market policies of the military junta and India's increasing economic stakes in Burma, is it possible for them to help de achieve democracy when they have such economic stakes in Burma. Thank you very much. Did you say economic stakes? Stakes. Uh, I'm a little suspicious of the word stakes. A lot of uh, political parties, which contested the election, said that they hope to find 
political space with the parliament. And uh, very few of them really have made this to the election. So I'm a little wary of the word space. But I think that if you mean that a greater economic opportunity in the country might lead to a greater openness to the social process, I do not necessarily because at the moment the economic advantages are limited to a very small circle. And until we can expand that circle, until we have two, a truly competitive economic team, I do not think that it is going to help the country to progress along the path to more liberal, uh, a more liberal situation. Thank you, Dorsu. Another question from the audience. Hi, our leader, Dawson Suji. I'm Tunkin from Burmese Rohingya Organization UK. We Rohingya people are strongly support you. I would like to ask you one question is, how we younger ethnic generation group, we can build up, united together, how can you guide us on that? I got the last part. How can, how can I guide you on that? And I don't know what it is you want me to guide you on. <laughs> Thank you. Go ahead, ask again, please. It, it, it's a little part that I lost. Uh, for the interests of Fuchsia Federal Union of Burma, I believe that we have to a strong unity. So we believe and faith on you. So how can you guide us uh, in younger future generation of Burma to build up unity and to work together? I, I really think I need a woman's voice to make it clearer. To Aung San Suu Kyi, our questioner, the person asking the question is from the Rohingya state. He's Rohingya. He wants to have your guidance about how to unify people from all the different ethnic groups? How to unify people? Yes. Well, I think the first thing you have to do if you really want to achieve unity is to listen to each other. It's not very... In fact, people like to listen to others who want to respect you and they Can you still hear us, Dong San Suu Kyi? Sorry? <laughs> Great. I, I, I'm glad that you're still on the line. We thought we'd lost yes, you. Yes, I'm still on the line. Another question from the audience, please. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Maria. I'm from Croatia. I'm, uh, again, I'm very honored to be able to ask you a question. Um, my question is regarding the um, um, transition to democracy. Do you, in, 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 as a, in a communist experience, when you uh, turn to democracy, there are usually um, um, hardliners in the authoritarian regime and the ones that are prone to negotiation. Do you feel that um, the um, sort of a negotiation prone part of the military junta uh, are ga gaining power or is it the other way around? So are they 
more, more willing to negotiate now or are they getting more radical? Um, are you asking if there are hardliners and moderates in the whole center and if there are some who might be open to negotiations? Yes, my, my, uh, are there, is there, is there a, such a division and which segment is, do you think is gaining more power? I'm sorry, I have to ask you to repeat that. Uh, my question is, do you think that there is such a division in the military junta of Burma uh, uh, to, to, moderate, to moderate and uh, sort of hardliners and if so, which segment do you think is gaining more power right now? Um, I'm just going to guess at your question because if I keep telling you to repeat it, you'll, you'll get very, um, no, I think it'll be very tedious no, for you. I, I, but, can, uh, I can repeat, I don't mind. She's just asking, do I, I think you're asking about outliners within the junta? Yes, hardliners versus moderates in the junta and which is on uh, top. Well, there are some people who say that there's no such thing as moderates within the junta. But I don't want to believe that. Because I think they all, after all, they are And I do believe that there are people in the junta. And whether you call them moderate uh, or whether you call them by any other name, I think they are the ones who might be open to the idea that we will achieve more by each other It's an absolute honor to, to speak with you today. Uh, Western governments have been full of praise for your release. Um, do you have any uh, words for them regarding their regulation of their corporations? Well, as usual, I'll have to say, you please, could you repeat this? Um, Western governments have been full of praise for your release. Do you have words for them regarding the behavior of their corporations? Now, I know that it's something to do with something smart. It's about, uh, while, while Western well, governments... Could you, could you just say the key word, one word? What is it since I released? That's it. We would like to know about. Multinational companies. Yes, Western multinational companies. Well, let's do it another time. Okay. Let, let's try another time. Let, uh, yes, please. Do Aung San Suu Kyi, Western governments yes. praise your release, but the audience member wants to know what do you think they should be saying to multinational corporations? Western. Western companies. Investing in Burma. <laughs> <laughs> Western companies. I'm sorry, investing the, the in thing to be getting rather worse. Western, and your 
Yes. Boys and are not coming through very well. No, it's very difficult. We're asking about Western comp companies investing in Burma. Ah, got it. Western companies investing in Burma. Uh, well, uh, what we want to, to know is why the Western countries think they are investing in Burma. If they think they are investing in Burma for the sake of Burma, then I think we would like to know why they think they, 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 their investments are going to benefit Burma and how. But if they are simply doing it for their own interest, then of course, uh, you know, I don't think I have to explain to you what I would think of that. But I think that in any case, investment should be based on some ethical consideration. We are often, we know that we cannot companies but I think that if we would understand that in the long run, getting the goodwill of the people and making the people understand that they are on the path on their, on their side would help these the company's investments prosper. And this is the final question from the audience. Hi, um, my name is Sarah and I'm very honored to be speaking to you and thank you for your thoughts. It's very inspiring. There has been talks on uh, the TRC in South Africa and how this could be a possible solution to Burma's case. Um, I hear that you um, admire Desmond Tutu and I do too. I grew up in South Africa and although I say that it had successes, partly short-term and narrowly economic, I see that it has ignored, for example, gender-based violence, which is on the rise and it has now made considerable failures. Would you see it for a possible solution? Um, well, I think I'm just a little good at guesswork. I think you're asking about uh, South Africa and how I think that the situation in South Africa compares to that in Burma, or rather the old situation in South Africa. Am I correct? That's correct, yes. Well, I think the big difference between South Africa, South Africa in the days of apartheid and Burma now is that in South Africa it was a case of color, of black against white, and it was like black and white. It was very clear cut, and I think the the world found it very difficult not to stand on the side of the black people. Now in Burma, it's this yellow against yellow, which makes it rather more difficult. This is why I say very often that I wish we were a different color from the military regime. And then I think we had more support for because people would find that they were obliged to stand on the path of those who were being discriminated against on the grounds of color. But we are being discriminated against on the grounds of our beliefs because what we believe in uh, is different from what the military authorities believe in. We have been oppressed, and our people have been imprisoned. And uh, yet, the world has not all rallied around to support our cause, simply because we are all of the same color. I, I really wish that all of us working for democracy in Burma would, would turn into a, a very different color, like Buffalo. And then I think possible. Do Aung San Suu Kyi, um, we're going to wrap up our dialogue, but before we do, 
I wanted to ask you for your closing thoughts. You've spent much of the past two decades imprisoned for your cause, but there are those who argue not much has been achieved. Can you tell us about um, lessons you may have learnt from that time? Um, how you see the way going forward? Uh, did you say how did I pass those years under detention? No, the path forward, Aung San Suu Kyi, the way forward. Oh, I'm sorry, could you repeat that again? Yes, of course. Your closing thoughts about the way forward. I'm sorry, I just couldn't make out what you were saying. It's all right. Um, can you tell us about your thoughts on the way forward for you, for the pro-democracy movement, and for Burma? The pro-democracy movement outside Burma? Inside Burma. Inside Burma? Yes. Um, well, uh, again, I, I have to guess at what you were saying. I think you asked how I feel about what I think about the movement inside Burma. Yes, please. Uh, I think that it is now gaining strength. As I said earlier, a lot more people are involved and many, many young people at that, which is very, very encouraging. I think uh, because of the improvement in communications because of, because of modern technology. People are more aware of what is going on and because of that the situation has improved. I think this is what you were asking. I, I'm sorry but I'm just guessing at the answer. The elections, during the elections, Do Aung San Suu Kyi, some pro-democracy elements decided to participate can you tell us about how to go forward from there? What is your vision of the way forward? Um, I think those who uh, decided to contest the elections did so because they believed that they would be able to achieve something from within Parliament. But as you probably know, the number of opposition parties who managed to gain seats are very, very few. And I think the opposition uh, members of Parliament do not make up even 10% of the whole assembly. So that means that they will be able to achieve very little. Under the new constitution, uh, it means at least 10% of the members, of, uh, at least 20% of the members of the assembly uh, to submit a draft bill. which means that they will be able to do very little. But we have made overtures to political parties that test the elections and also to independent candidates to work together with us in order to achieve what they thought they might achieve from inside Parliament by working outside Parliament. And we have had some success in this because uh, we have started working on small projects together with as some of the independent candidates who did not manage to get into Parliament. Do Aung San Suu Kyi, your final thoughts? Sorry? 
Aung San Suu Kyi, your concluding thoughts for this dialogue, please. That's right. If we could ask you for your final well, words. I must say that, in a way, as we both Hello? Hello. It was difficult uh, to hear you. Can I say thank you for your patience? Uh, I hope that next time we manage to uh, do this sort of thing Well, we waited 10 years, 20 years, for you to be released, so we didn't mind. These were small problems.